My name is Rick Cleffel, and welcome to the show. I wake to the drone of an airplane engine and the feeling of something warm dripping down my chin. I lift my hand to feel my face. My front four teeth are gone. I have a hole in my cheek. My nose is broken, and my eyes are swollen nearly shut. I open them, and I look around me, and I'm in the back of a plane, and there's no one near me. I look at my clothes, and my clothes are covered with a colorful mixture of spit, snot, urine, vomit, and blood. I reach for the call button, and I find it, and I push it, and I wait, and 30 seconds later, an attendant arrives. How can I help you? Where am I going? You don't know? No. You're going to Chicago, sir. How did I get here? A doctor and two men brought you on. They say anything? They talked to the captain, sir. We were told to let you sleep. How long till we land? About 20 minutes. Thank you. Although I never look up, I know she smiles and she feels sorry for me. She shouldn't. A short while later, we touch down. I look around for anything I might have with me, but there's nothing. No ticket, no bags, no clothes, no wallet. I sit and I wait and I try to figure out what happened. Nothing comes. Once the rest of the passengers are gone, I stand and start to make my way to the door. After about five steps, I sit back down. Walking is out of the question. I see my attendant friend and I raise a hand. Are you doing, are you okay? No. What's wrong? I can't really walk. If you make it to the door, I can get you a chair. How far is the door? Not far. I stand. I wobble. I sit back down. I stare at the floor and I take a deep breath. At the age of 23, author James Frey had been an alcoholic for 10 years and a crack addict for three. He was told that if he wanted to live to see the age of 24, he'd have to give it up. He tells his story in the frank and remarkable book, A Million Little Pieces. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's just, it is a remarkable book. The language is just amazing. Um, Tell us what brought you to the state you described on the first page of your book. Um, I don't remember exactly what brought me to the state (laughs) on the first page of the book. I don't really have any memory of the preceding two weeks. Um, What sort of brought me there over the course of several years was uh, increased amounts of drugs, um, most specifically alcohol and cocaine, which I did on a daily basis in, in fairly significant quantities. Now, you were rescued by your parents who put you in the oldest rehab facility in the nation. Tell us about where you stayed, the building, the place, its history. Uh, the place is a, it's not a single building. It's actually a series of 35 connected buildings. It's out in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota. Um, it sits on a chunk of land that I believe is about 2,500 acres. Um, it's very nice. It's sort of like going to a... I mean, it's not extraordinarily nice. It's probably like going to a boarding school or a, you know, a Best Western, um, except there's a hospital attached and you have to go to a lot of meetings and therapy sessions and uh, lectures every day. Um, And the grounds around it are filled with walking trails and lakes and uh, swamps and ponds. So you can sort of, if you need to lose yourself, you can just sort of go walk around for a while. the facility is staffed entirely by addicts and alcoholics. Everyone who works there is a recovering addict or alcoholic of some sort. Um, everyone from the janitors to the people who serve the food to the accountants to the guys who mow the lawn. Um, it holds about 250 patients, half of which are men, half of which are women, spread through about six units. Um, and it's a good place. It does a lot of good in the world. 
Now, your book showcases a lot of physical and mental agony, doesn't it? How did you feel when you first came into this rehab facility? I I was wrecked. You know, my body was wrecked. I was very, very sick. I had physical dependencies to alcohol and cocaine. If I didn't have them in me very regularly or pretty much all the time, I went into, uh, I started to detox and I would shake. I would get sick. Um, and at the same time, if I when I used drugs, I would also get sick. I was vomiting four or five times a day, um, blood. Uh, I would urinate blood. Um, so my physical condition was, was very bad. And along with that, my mental condition was worse. I mean, you, you can't be healthy and do what I did to myself. Um, I, I, at the point where I entered the facility, I, was, I pretty much resigned myself to dying. Now, what happens when a newly incarcerated addict needs a root canal? <laughs> um, in my case... I needed root canals, um, my two front teeth, and they gave me the option of not having them done, letting my teeth die and fall out, and then wearing dentures, or going to get them done, but I had to do it without anesthesia or painkillers. Um, I didn't want dentures. I was only 23, and I figured I'd just go get it done, that it couldn't hurt that bad, and and I was wrong. It did hurt that bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly a really striking passage in the book, and again, your language as you write about this is just very powerful. You abandon most punctuation. The book itself is formatted unusually. Did you, with no indents for the paragraphs, is that something that you yourself requested? Yeah, I actually... Um the indentation was something I got in an argument with the publisher about because they'd never published a book <laughs> where there were no paragraph indentations in the entire thing. Um, so, you know, it, it, they eventually succumbed to my arguments because I think they were valid. Um, you know, my my style has been called a renunciation of style because there are very there's very little punctuation in it. I don't use any of the traditional rules of grammar. I never use quotation marks. Um, I did that. Because, uh, well, for a number of reasons. One of them was I, th I think the way I write is the most accurate reflection of what I think and what I feel. It's a, it's a very close articulation of those things. And I also, when I was writing the book, uh, thought that if I was going to write a book about addiction, one of the things I should try to do is make the reader understand what it feels like to be addicted and so I tried to write in a way that would addict the reader to the words on the page. And in order to do that, I felt that the book had to move very, very quickly. And you had to experience sort of a rush the same way you experience a rush sometimes with addiction. And, you know, commas, periods, quotation marks, all that would have slowed me down. So I just got rid of them all. It's an effective gambit. You really feel, the reader feels as if they've been hot-wired into your brain. It's remarkably well done. Thank you very much. Now, you weren't really receptive to the treatment laid out by the center, were you? No, I uh, I was not receptive to the treatment. My, the facility I was in uh, bases their recovery program on the 12-step model, which is what 99.9% .9 of all recovery centers in, in America and in the world use. Um, I, di I didn't sort of believe in that model because it is largely based upon a belief in either God 
or a higher power. That higher power can be a, a higher power of your choosing, but you still need to have one. Um, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a higher power. I don't believe there's anything but but this life that we have. And so I refused to buy into their system because I didn't believe in what it was based on. Um, that certainly caused some problems for me because, uh, you know, they, they wanted, they thought that that was the only way I could get better. And I thought it wasn't. So there were, there was a lot of, there was a struggle between us to, to decide who, who and how I would get better, how I would get better, really. Your language really reflects that feeling of groundedness in yourself. There's no, your prose is very down to earth. Everything is direct. Again, as I said, it's like hot wired and it really reflects that feeling. Now, um, how did you feel when you first read the big blue book of Alcoholics Anonymous? Um, I thought it was well written, but I didn't believe in it, you know, and, and these people were trying to pound it down me, pound it into me. You have to believe, you have to believe, you have to believe. And I didn't believe I wasn't going to believe. Um, and so when I was, when I finally did read the book, I, I didn't really think about it at all, except that I was very angry that these people tried to keep forcing me to read it. So I took the copy I was given and, and I threw it out the window. Now, is it a coincidence that your book is a big blue book? Uh, yeah, it is actually a coincidence. <laughs> now, um, you created your own kind of program and you made your own decisions as to how your recovery was to be accomplished, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I sort of developed uh, the idea that, that addiction is a choice and is a series of choices and is a process of decision-making that can be arrested. I believe that every time when I was using, every time I picked up a bottle or a pipe and brought it to my mouth, I was making a decision to do it. I knew I was doing it. I knew it was bad for me. I knew it was hurting me and people around me, but I did it anyway. So I very much believed that I could reverse that process of addiction by making the decision not to do it. Um, and I, I make a joke that I developed my own 12-step program. The first 11 steps mean nothing, and the 12th is don't do it. And it's as simple as that. And, and it's very powerful, and... It makes sense. I'll, I think a number of people are have been very receptive to this feeling because the religiosity that's inherent in the Alcoholics Anonymous program sometimes doesn't it seem like a recruiting tool for Christianity? Yeah, I mean, they say you can choose a higher power uh, that that you use a higher power of your own choosing, but most of the time it's God. You know, the the Christian, the white male Christian God. Um, and that wasn't anything I was going to believe in. And, and the simple facts are that AA doesn't work for the overwhelming majority of people who use it. Um, but people who believe in it believe that it's a, the only way and are often very righteous about it. And, and they try to force people into believing what they believe, just as a lot of people who are very, very pious and religious try to force other people into, into believing what they believe. But your first decision, in, even though you rejected AA, your first decision was to actually, you had to force yourself to make it through one day, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I believe in that idea that 
it, you sometimes need to break things down into small increments in order to survive. Um, I use that principle very much. Um, you know, I used to break it down into much smaller, smaller increments than a day. You know, when I, when I would really want something, when I would really want to use, I would tell myself I can resist this urge for 10 seconds. And then 10 seconds later, I would say I can resist it for 10 more. And then I would say I can resist it for a minute. And, you know, those seconds and those minutes and those hours and those days add up and, and you get better at resisting. And, um, Sometimes I needed to break it into smaller increments. Sometimes I didn't. Tell us how you reflect that in your language with your terseness and your use of repetition. Um, how I reflect need? The, the small increments, the making it one bit at a time. Well, one thing I, tr I try to do with my language is have it very much reflect what I think and what I feel. Um, and when I would break, when I would break things down into small increments, I wrote in small increments, short, stunted sentences, um, constant repetition because constant, because thoughts were constantly repeating themselves in my mind. I don't think about something once and then have it go away. I think about it and it comes back to me and it comes back to me and it comes back to me. Um, so I, I tried to use those and, and I don't have long fluid thoughts when I think I have, you know, I have short bursts of thought that sort of repeat themselves in my mind until they work themselves out. And, and I tried to do that as I wrote. Now, some of these people you, that you were with, they really helped you, didn't they? Absolutely. I mean, the one of the amazing parts about being in the facility I was in is you're in there with a bunch of other people who are as unhealthy as you are. And you're all there to sort of fight for your lives. And you bond with those people very, very quickly and deeply because of the extreme situation that you're in. And I think one of the important things for me was, was making bonds with certain people who helped me make it through each day or each minute or each hour. Um, I very much, I very much give credit to the people I knew for helping me get through it. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it without them. And, and in a lot of ways I wrote this book to honor them. A lot of them didn't make it and have passed away or are incarcerated for the rest of their lives and, and they've been forgotten, but I mean, they were never forgotten by me. And, and one of the motivations to write this book was to memorialize them and to honor them and to, to acknowledge the debt. Could you tell us about some of them? Um, my closest friends were, uh, a judge who was my roommate. He was a federal judge from the South who was an alcoholic. Um, Another friend of mine was a member of an organized crime family of some sort. I didn't really ever go into what he did with him too specifically. Um, I was very close to a young woman whose mother had forced her into prostitution at a young age and who had uh, fairly profound problems with benzodiazepines and crack. Um, I was friends with a steel worker, professional boxer, guy who was just a criminal and a drug dealer. It was a wide range of people. It was a, a group that cut across ro racial and socioeconomic boundaries, just the way addiction does. Um, and they were amazing. It's, it's, the portraits of the people you paint are incredibly powerful. But what I also find is that the book is suffused with this grim sense of humor. It's, the prose is very addictive, but as you read it, you're, there's a lot of laughter. I, I couldn't help myself. The, 
between your poetic use of profanity and some of the situations <laughs> you describe, I, I, I found myself laughing a lot. Now, it doesn't come off as cruel, though. How Can you talk about how you created that in the words and how you felt about that? Um, I often talk about my experience in the facility as being the worst time of my life and the best time of my life. And when you put a bunch of lunatic drug addicts and you lock them up in a couple rooms together and you force them to spend all day together, they're going to need some relief. And we used to just sit and make each other laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh, telling telling crazy stories about things we had done. Or you know, when you live that life, you have a, a different perspective on everyday things. So we'd watch TV shows that were sort of ridiculous and howl and howl and howl. And I also tried to laugh a lot because laughing was about the only thing that made me feel good. You know, it, when I laughed, I felt better and I felt a, more, a little bit more alive than I normally did. Um, and so I tried to laugh as much as I could. And, and my just like my experience there wasn't all awful, I didn't want to make the book all awful. There was some joy there and some laughter and some funny things that happened and I tried to include them. There's a lot of joy, too. I think you write very well of your love for one of the patients, Lily. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I I, I did love her very much. Um, and I, I had actually never wrote of her before or really even spoken of her before, except with some of the people who knew her. Um, and, you know, this book is, like I said, it's a memorial to her. I, was, I'm very, I have very precious memories of her, and I tried to honor them. Now, readers can find themselves on both sides of the fence when reading this book. You, Some people may simultaneously feel some identification with the addict, with the, the trying to cure, get away from those cravings, yet also find themselves identifying with the parents of the addicts and the people who have to deal with them. Could you talk about how you play both sides of the game with this? I just tried to portray everything as honestly as I could. I tried to, when I wrote, uh, when my parents were in the book and I wrote from their perspective, I just tried to, to think from their perspective and, and to not just look at it from my side. I mean, I, another thing I wanted to do with, with the book was help people, help friends and family members and loved ones of addicts understand a, what it's like to be an addict, which would potentially bring them to a greater understanding of whoever it is in their life who's addicted, and B, what it's like for other people who have had to deal with them to deal with them. Um, I just tried to you know, paint a clear, objective picture of what it was like for my parents and what it was like for me. You've certainly succeeded in that uh, realm. The reader response to this has been really significant, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been amazing. Um, I get about 50 to 60 emails a day, which is incredible. Um, I try to return as many of them as I can, but it, it's, it's a little bit overwhelming. A lot of them are people who have read the book and who say it's very much helped them um, either understand an addict or if they are an addict, it has helped them just get through the day a little bit more. Or it's just made them feel a little bit better because they feel like somebody out there understands what what they feel and is able to articulate it. Um, and then the readings I, I do, it's been amazing. I'm a first time writer who is relatively unknown and 
you know, I get a hundred, 120 people who show up to see me everywhere I go. And a lot of them cry. I've had women pass out, not cause I'm handsome or cause I'm a rock star. It's just cause I think people are, uh, feel overwhelmed with what the subject matter is and they need help. And I think this book does that a little bit. It, it's also certainly the power of the language. Could you talk about where you discovered that language? Um, I, well, I always wanted to be a writer, and after the events of the book, I started trying to write, and it took me a long time to figure out how to write, and, and what I was always trying to do was find a very close articulation of, of what my thoughts are and what my feelings are, and as I would work, I would have very specific ideas of how I wanted to say things and how I wanted to write things, but I could never do it. It took me a long time to figure it out, to figure out how to say things in, in a way that was very close to the way I wanted to say them. Um, and I, I really did that just by sitting and working for hours and hours and hours. I wrote thousands of pages of, of complete garbage until I was able to hone um, my voice into a voice that was very close to what my interior voice is. Now, how, your, how did your um, career as a screenplay writer play into this? Uh, the best thing about being a screenwriter is that I made money as a writer, um, and I also made enough money that I was able to have a lot of free time to continue to try to write prose. Um, I did learn certain things from screenwriting that I think helped me in the book. Um, good scripts are very usually very simple. They're very economical in their use of words. Uh, the dialogue has to be pretty good. And I think those are all things I, I took from it and made a part of what what this book is um so now you become something of an overnight sensation with this book is fame a dangerous addiction <laughs> i you know i didn't write this book to be famous and and the fame isn't isn't anything that really means much to me uh, it's very humbling if anything um i have no no desire to ever be recognized on the street or to be in a million magazines um I think I've received a lot of attention because I think the book is is good, and I think it's not like anything that has been written before. Um, you know, I I I don't want to be I don't want fame or success or anything to change me, and I I don't I hope that it won't. Um, what can we ex What can we expect next from you as a writer? I'm writing another book that starts where this one left off and will focus primarily on my relationship with one of the characters in this book whose name is Leonard. The book is going to be called My Friend Leonard. Um, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Leonard was by far one of my favorite characters in he, this book. He's a great man. He's a great man. He was the, the member of the organized crime family who I mentioned earlier. Um, so I'm doing that. I'm about a third of the way done with that. After that, I think I'm going to write a book about a guy who thinks that he's the son of God. And if I do it well and I do it the way I hope to do it, the reader won't be sure if the guy actually is or actually is just a lunatic. Um, so I think that'll take up the next three or four years. <laughs> well, I th we'll certainly be looking forward to all of them. We've been talking with James Frey. His first novel is A Million Little Pieces. Thank you very much, James. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here.